One of the earliest accounts about Jesus of Nazareth, his life, death, and resurrection, was written by a man named Luke. We know it as the Gospel of Luke. But Luke continued the story in a second volume called the Book of Acts. And it's all about what Jesus continued to do after his resurrection. Acts begins with the disciples who are hanging out with Jesus, who's just come back to life, which is mind-blowing to imagine. And then for weeks, the risen Jesus kept teaching them about his upside-down kingdom, the new creation that he launched through his death and resurrection. This is exciting stuff, and the disciples are ready to go tell the world. But then Jesus tells them to wait and to stay in Jerusalem until they receive a new kind of power so they can be faithful witnesses to Jesus and his kingdom. Then he says that their mission is going to begin in Jerusalem, then move out to Judea and Samaria, and then from there out into the nations. It's like a road map for the whole book of Acts. Then the disciples saw Jesus enthroned as king of all creation. So the disciples wait, wondering when this power is going to come. And then comes the time of Pentecost. So this is an ancient Israelite festival it's during the early summer, and thousands and thousands of Jewish pilgrims would come back to Jerusalem from all over the world, all these different languages and cultures colliding in the city. And the disciples are together in a house, which is suddenly filled with rushing wind along with fire. The fire splinters off into tongues of fire hovering over people's heads. What's this all about? Yeah, so Luke is tapping into a repeated Old Testament theme. When God's presence showed up similarly at Mount Sinai, he made a covenant with Israel and gave them the Ten Commandments. Then later, when God's glory came in a pillar of fire, it filled the tabernacle when he came to live among them. But that was just one pillar of fire, not many. Exactly. Luke's making an important point here. This is God's personal temple presence, God's spirit that was foretold by Israel's prophets. And now it's come to take up residence in the new temple of Jesus' body, that is, his people. They've become little mobile temples where God now dwells. And they start to tell stories about Jesus, but they're speaking in languages that they didn't know before, yet all the visitors can understand them. What's this all about? Well, Peter gets up to explain that this is the fulfillment of Israel's hopes based on the scriptures. God's plan was always to use the unified family of Abraham to bring peace and justice to the world. But the tribes of Israel had been scattered because of the exile. Now here at Pentecost, representatives from all of the tribes come back together and they're introduced to their Messiah, the crucified and risen Jesus, so they can now become the restored people of Israel. And thousands of them start following the way of Jesus. Which brings us to Luke's tale of two temples. So you've got the temple that Herod built in Jerusalem, where Jesus' disciples worship like the rest of the Israelites. But now there's also Jesus' temple, which consists of people. This temple's meeting together in homes all over Jerusalem, and they were approaching life in a radical new way. Right, think about it. Many of these pilgrims aren't even from Jerusalem, so they formed these new families, and they're all depending on each other. Yeah, people would sell their stuff, provide for the poor among them. They ate their meals together. They said their daily prayers together. They were learning from the apostles what it meant to live as if Jesus is the true king of the world. And it must have been exhilarating. But it wasn't all fun and games. Being God's temple is serious business, just like in the Old Testament. So you might know about that strange story in the book of Leviticus about two priests who disrespect God in the temple and then suddenly die. Well, Luke includes here a similar story of two disciples who dishonor God's spirit in this new temple, and they suffer a similar fate. So there's corruption in the community. But the bigger problem is coming from the outside. Yeah, from the other temple. Its leaders are threatened by this new messianic movement, and so they arrest the apostles, they try to stop them. 
And this brings us to the final story in the Jerusalem section of Acts. We're introduced to a new disciple, Stephen. Oh yeah, Stephen. He's on fire. He steps up as a leader among the disciples to serve the poor, and he would go to the temple courts to teach people about the way of Jesus. So the temple leaders arrest Stephen, and they find false witnesses to accuse him of dishonoring Moses and of being a terrorist who's threatening the temple. In response, Stephen gives this powerful speech about how predictable this whole situation was. Yeah, he retells the whole Old Testament story, highlighting characters like Joseph, Moses, and the prophets, people who are consistently rejected and persecuted by their own people. Israel's been resisting God's representatives for centuries, and so their rejection of Jesus and now of his followers is a rejection of God himself. They get angry, and they start to execute him by picking up rocks and smashing him to death. And as he's dying, he commits himself to the way of Jesus, to suffer because of the sins of others. He even cries out, Lord, don't hold the sin against them. This is basically what Jesus said at his death. Exactly. Stephen becomes the first martyr of the Jesus movement. Many more to come. But this persecution contains seeds of hope, which is why Luke introduces us to a new character here, a religious leader named Saul. He stands over Stephen's dead body and even approves of the whole thing. Wait, Saul, you mean the man who becomes the apostle Paul? Yes, Luke is showing how even this tragic murder can't stop Jesus' kingdom. And so many persecuted disciples scatter out of Jerusalem, and just as Jesus said, they head into Judea and Samaria. Now, the story of what happens there, that's what the next section of Acts is all about. Life spring, good morning. Such an amazing morning so far. So good to be in the house of the Lord. If we haven't met before, my name is Pastor Jesse, and uh, I get to do this with one of my good friends and brother in Christ, Pastor Dan here, and his wife, Pastor Mary. They were just up here. And uh, this morning, we get to go back into the book of Acts. And before we start, let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you that In the word before us this morning, God, we look at the witness of a man who amid a great trial took every opportunity to declare truth. And Father, I thank you for the book of Acts, which includes moments like this, Lord, that speaks to the sacrifice and cost of following you. I pray that you encourage us today by your word. And everyone says, Amen. All right, so this morning we're going back into the book of Acts, and if you have your Bibles or smartphones with you, turn with me to Acts chapter 7. I know it probably seems like such a long time ago, but really, several weeks ago, in our study of Acts, we met a man named Stephen, as mentioned in the video, who emerges as one of the most remarkable characters of the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 7, we find the longest recorded sermon in the book, 60 verses to be exact. So at one minute per verse, that gives me 60 minutes, which is about an hour. I won't hold you here that long. I won't keep you that long. But this morning, we get to see his defense of the charges brought against him. In this chapter, we find Stephen standing before the same Jewish religious leaders that had previously arrested Peter and John. While they had only been roughed up and released, 
Stephen's sermon turned out to be more than they could tolerate. As even before he finished preaching, they mobbed him, dragged him out of the city, and stoned him to death. See, the Jews in Stephen's day were fiercely loyal to the land, to Jerusalem, and the temple as the only center for worshiping God. And earlier in verses 8 to 11 of chapter 6, Stephen had been accused of speaking blasphemous, offensive, and ungodly words against Moses, God, and the temple. And to support their case, they even furnished some false witnesses to testify and say that he spoke against the holy place and against the law. So, throughout his sermon, we'll see that Stephen repeatedly shows that God had worked in many places and ways in his servants throughout the centuries to show that worship is not only limited to the land or to the temple. And through his sermon, Stephen retells the high point of Israel's history with a recap of the patriarchal period. And it's a remarkable defense to the charges brought against him. But it's also an outstanding presentation of the gospel. So let's read verse 1 of chapter 7. It reads like this, and it should be up on the screen for you. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? The high priest, probably Caiaphas, asked Stephen whether the charges made against him up in chapter 6 are true. And Stephen, like Peter before him, is not intimidated by this high court. And he fearlessly and boldly proclaims in verses 2 and 3, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he left from Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. I love how this verse opens because it shows us that while Stephen isn't intimidated by the high court, he also replies in a manner of reconciliation and respect for them. He says, brothers and fathers. Here, he's affirming his oneness with them as Jews and giving respect to their authority. Stephen then continues by initially answering the charge of blasphemy against God by emphasizing that the God of glory appeared to Abraham before he even came into the promised land. Essentially, Stephen wasn't defending himself in the sense of how we define that word. Rather, he was explaining that not only was a temple unnecessary for this revelation of the God of glory, but that God is not restricted to any one place. Amen? If, see, it wasn't as if Abraham was in Mesopotamia and God shouted from Mount Zion, Abraham, 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 Abraham. And he heard it like that. Come here, come here, come here. Rather, God appeared to him right there in Mesopotamia in all his glory. To further drive home this point, Stephen continues in verses 4 to 8 with the following. But specifically, in verse 4, he says, So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. Verse 5, he gave him no inheritance here, not even ground to set his foot on. But God promised him 
that he and his descendants after him would possess the land. Even though at that time Abraham had no child, God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. And they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. God said, and afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. So here in these verses, Stephen's retelling of Abraham's story mirrors a high view of God as a promise-keeping God. And he pointedly mentions that Abraham had been called and given a promise while still outside the land. Stephen does this because the Pharisees and other Hebrew Jews place excessive importance on living in the land. And scholars believe that one of the reasons they probably chose to persecute Stephen was that he was a Jew from outside the land. Therefore, Stephen, in one sense, was also noting that just as God was working with Abraham, a man who came from outside the land, so he, like Abraham, is an example of one who has grown in faith and obedience. His relationship with God, like Abraham, is established on the basis of faith and not outward evidence like a temple or the structure of institutional religions and customs. In other words, Stephen was saying that God's favor is the result of a call on obedient faith, not a result of birthplace or family line. And that extends to you and I. That extends to you and I. He calls Abraham, Moses, Deborah, Esther, people like these in the Bible, but he also calls you today, a man and a woman from Auburn, from Federal Way, from Edgewood, from Kent, from wherever you come from, even those of you tuned in online, from this state, outside of this country. He calls you. He calls you. In verse 6, he says, Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. Stephen highlights that the promise would not be easy for Abraham or his descendants. Yet, God promised to judge the nation that put Israel into bondage. Likewise for us, we're passing through. We haven't attained our promised land as yet. We aren't reunited with Christ just yet. And oh, what a glorious day that will be. But until then, there are many trials in this land. Have you not lived the past year, past couple of years? 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We are called out. You are called out. Church, just as Stephen noted, God knows how to take care of and protect his people. 
In John chapter 17, verses 14 to 16, Jesus says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. So though Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was the defeat of Satan, he is still loose and orchestrating his evil schemes against believers. He seeks to destroy believers, but God is our strong protector. We sang it this morning. He wears victor's crown. We can be hidden in the shadow of his wing, just as Stephen was alluding to here in these verses. See, Stephen rested in that assurance himself, that God had us hid back. God had his back, and he challenged the council to have the same assurance. And my prayer for you today is that you would have the same assurance. God isn't cowering over in the corner. He isn't. Stand firm on his word, church. Claim his word over your life. Let's not be so driven by the structure of institutional religion and customs. Those things aren't bad. That when they take precedence over the Word of God and what the Word of God says, then there's no place for it. Because the buck stops with His Word. Amen? In verse 8, Stephen talks about covenant and circumcision. And the Jews were very proud of being circumcised on the eighth day. But Stephen will later point out, in contrast to this, that God's people are uncircumcised in heart because they were disobedient. See, if we look closely at the pattern in these events, we'll see that it forms a repeating structure for the entire sermon, meaning Abraham was chosen by God and sent to a foreign land. But in that land, he doesn't receive the full inheritance that he was promised. Instead, he produces offspring that become a family and nation. But through a covenant, Abraham is promised to receive this inheritance in a future day. Not only does this pattern begin to suggest Jesus' own life, but Abraham's story itself serves as an important prerequisite for Jesus' coming, since it is the Abrahamic covenant that promises the Messiah. Galatians 3.16 says, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, being one person, who is Christ. Galatians 3.29 says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And the Jews of Stephen's day needed to realize God had not exhausted his promise to Abraham by giving them what they presently valued so highly, the temple. Stephen was saying that there is a greater inheritance in Christ. There's a greater inheritance for you today in Christ. Acts chapter 7, verses 9 to 16. It says, Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him 
and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all of Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, seventy-five in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. Now, the story turns to Joseph. In these verses, Stephen continues to develop the story of Jesus as reflected in the lives and circumstances of the Old Testament. He notes that the first time Joseph was called to lead his family, his brothers rejected him and became jealous. Yet God was with him. Stephen's subtle point is that rejection by men or men of Israel doesn't mean rejection by God. As eventually, God raised Joseph up and restored him. But let's look closer at his point on jealousy. Notice that it is through jealousy that the brothers sold Joseph into Egypt. And there is a reason that Stephen mentions the jealousy of Joseph's brother. He was indicating that the sin which they committed is now being repeated by the members of the Sanhedrin. They were motivated by a spirit of jealousy. If you remember, Acts chapter 5 verse 17 says that the high priest and all their, his associates were members of the party of the Sadducees. They were filled with jealousy. And so, they were doing to Stephen the very same thing that Joseph's brothers did to him. The brothers rejected Joseph who was their redeemer. And that is exactly what they were doing in rejecting Jesus, who was also their redeemer. In the next portion of verses, Stephen turns to Moses to further defend himself, specifically to address the charge that he blasphemed him. Let's read from verses 17 to 29. And we're just about halfway. I encourage you to stay with me. We're moving along. As the time drawn near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. 
The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the author pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had a few slaves. Here, Stephen points out that it was when Moses was living in a foreign country and trained in all the wisdom of Egypt, he had arisen as a deliverer. But once again, as with Joseph, they had rejected God's deliverer. Therefore, Stephen was saying that it was they who had blasphemed God by rejecting Moses, whom he had sent. Additionally, in these verses, Moses takes the role of forerunner of Jesus. Like with Joseph, Moses is a man sent by God to deliver the Jews. This is an obvious parallel to Jesus. And several of the things Stephen says about Moses are similar to things said in the Gospels concerning Jesus. In reality, Stephen's message was plain. It was this, you have rejected Jesus who was like Moses, yet greater than him. And you deny that Jesus has any right to be a ruler and judge over you. Verses 30 to 37. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. From the verses we just read, we see that when it came time for Moses to return, God appeared to him. And notice again the revenge with which Stephen, the reverence, sorry, with which Stephen describes Moses. The charge of blaspheme against Moses is effectively denied here as Stephen gives a proper and respectful testimony concerning Moses. Secondly, Stephen continues to show that physical land was not the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel, as the call to Moses took place outside the land. In fact, the land is counted holy simply because God was present. By this, Stephen reminds the leadership that God himself stated through Moses that their Messiah would be modeled on the life of Moses. Verse 33 to 43. I 
told you we're moving along here. We'll be done shortly. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received the living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for Forty years in the wilderness, people of Israel, you have taken up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephim, and the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Stephen here is now addressing the charge of speaking against the law. Rather than speaking against the law, Stephen upholds the law, calling scripture living oracles. They are living because they are the manifestation of God in Christ. They are living because they call men to a new relationship with God. In contrast to his adoration for a living word, Stephen speaks against the people's disobedience to the law. They were unwilling to be obedient to God and turned their backs on him. And this is intentional here as he as he's pointedly speaking to the leaders of Israel who were unwilling to be obedient to the living word in their day. In fact, Stephen reveals that while the nation wandered in the desert, they continued to engage in idol worship and made sacrifices to Moloch. By comparison, Stephen implies that it wasn't he who spoke against the law. Rather, it was the Jewish leaders in the Sanhedrin who were guilty of this offense in the way they rejected the word of God through Christ and in essence chose idol worship instead. And now Stephen gets ready to speak about the temple. As I mentioned earlier to the Israelites, the temple had virtually become their God. No wonder Stephen's words seemed like blasphemy to them. Says our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Stephen's audience boasted in the temple as if it gave them special access to God. In spite of their wicked behavior, 
Stephen then is showing them that the main issue is not the place where they worship, but rather having their hearts right before God was what was important. In fact, they thought that having the temple gave them special privileges with God, no matter how corrupt their behavior was. But the temple is not equivalent of the God-given and God-designed tabernacle. Stephen's argument is that God himself, through the prophet Isaiah, had predicted that the temple would not always be an adequate place of worship. The temple was not a priority for God because he doesn't dwell in a building made by human hands. This building isn't what represents him. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And now, up to this point, as we've gone through this, very fastly, I must add, (laughs) Stephen, on a whole, aligned himself with them. As I mentioned in our opening, he often refers to them as brothers and fathers. But now, as we're about to see, he changes tone in order to apply his message And from this point on, you'll see that he distances himself from his listeners and speaks firmly to them. Verses 51 to 53. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed. Strong words. Even reading that. Strong words. And so Stephen brings his sermon to conclusion by applying all these lessons to his audience. Basically, he's saying that they are repeating the sins of their fathers. They are uncircumcised in heart, which is to say they are unbelievers. Here, circumcision of heart is contrasted with circumcision of the flesh. And Stephen says that they have rejected and persecuted the prophets as did their fathers. And in particular, they have persecuted the righteous one who was foretold beforehand. Before moving forward, I also want to note how throughout the sermon, Stephen virtually makes no mention of Jesus. And yet, he's been preaching about Jesus throughout his testimony. It is also interesting to see how Stephen becomes the link between Peter and Paul. Peter is known as the apostle who was reluctant to put aside the law and the customs of Israel in order to follow Jesus fully. While Paul is the apostle anointed to clearly demonstrate that the new replaced the old. And Stephen is the first among the brethren to preach this and does so within hearing of both these men. Let's read the last few verses of this chapter. It says, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, 
I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And this, at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. So in response to this disapproving conclusion, the Sanhedrin erupts in anger. They gnash their teeth, which means to bite loudly with noise. This is an expression to indicate aggressive and angry speech. While this outburst is taking place, Stephen is calmed and encouraged by a heavenly vision, granted to him alone. He sees Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. And Stephen gazed at this incredible sight. He's completely distracted away from the moment of what's happening around him. And he even tries to share it with everyone. It's as if Stephen expects that the vision is available to everyone. And if they would only see it with him, then they would stop fighting. But no one else sees the vision. And when Stephen declares that he sees the Son of Man next to the Father, this statement is the last straw to the Sanhedrin, who viewed it as blasphemy. They covered their ears, rushed him, dragged him outside the city, and stoned him. They first moved their outer coats and laid them at the feet of Saul. And this is important. As even though it's mentioned here as an accompanying statement, Luke notes it because he knows how important Saul will become in his narrative. Later, described as a young man, this meant Saul was under the age of 40. And while the stoning takes place, Stephen apparently continues to have a vision of Jesus. And he asked Jesus to take his spirit immediately, probably so that he wouldn't experience a prolonged death. And it appears Jesus answers his prayers since he dies while still on his knees. See, Stephen's life ended in the same way it had been lived, in complete trust in God, believing that Jesus would take care of him in the life to come. And the story ends with the mangled body of Stephen. Or does it? Hmm? Or does it end like that? I say it does not. It does not end so. Instead, it ends with a brief word to suggest something is yet to come. That suggestive word is in and it is in verse 58 and it says this the witness laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul evidently Saul was consenting to Stephen's death and the mob thought they had silenced this powerful preacher what they didn't realize 
was that they actually set in motion a chain of events that would raise up a preacher even more powerful and persuasive than Stephen. Saul watched Stephen's death and was complicit in it. But the day was coming when Saul would see for himself the Savior Stephen had seen at his death. Then Saul would become the Apostle Paul and the gospel would flow passionately from his lips and his pen. What an image that is. So we've gone through all these verses. But what can we learn by all this? What does this really mean for us today? How do we apply this to us today? Well, here are a few things I'd like for you to consider as we're coming to a close. First, we should begin by noting the integrity of Stephen's witness. He lived what he professed. He talked the talk and he walked the walk. Therefore, as believers, we must not minimize the integrity of our witness on another person. The question then is this, is there integrity in our witness to Christ? I'll be going through a few questions here, and I've been asking myself, myself, I'm one person, (laughs) these questions. I've been asking myself these questions. Is there integrity in our witness to Christ? Do we really show care and concern for all people in the way that Christ showed his care and concern for you and I? You see, it is so easy to preach, but so much more difficult to practice. And yet, we cannot know the deep fulfillment of Christian living unless it is real and unless it is every day. It is not just on Sunday. That is the first thing you need to see here, the integrity of Stephen's witness. Second thing we need to note is Stephen's willingness to pay any price for his faith. You know, this may be one of the most troubling aspects of Christian discipleship today, our unwillingness to pay a difficult price. Church, There must be a willingness to make hard choices. That is one secret of an effective Christian life. Of course, we're all familiar with Jesus' words about wide and narrow roads. The wide road is the road with few challenges, and the easy road requires little out of us. And often in our culture and society, I see that we are a generation of people committed to comfort at any cost. One of the most common obstacles to celebrating life fully is our avoidance of pain. We dread pain. No, I don't want to be in pain. We dread pain. We would do anything to escape pain. Our culture reinforces our avoidance of pain by assuring us we can live a painless life. Advertisements constantly encourage us to believe that life can be pain-free, but to live without pain is a myth. This is an unmistakable, clear, unchangeable fact. And many of us do not realize that pain and joy runs together. See, when we cut ourselves off from pain, we have unwittingly cut ourselves off from joy 
as well. We have. We have. How can you celebrate God in health if you don't know what it is to maybe walk through challenges in this life? How can we even speak about taking up a cross and following Jesus to a generation that has been raised up to believe that life can be pain-free? Taking up a cross means doing whatever it takes, even if it is as far outside of our comfort zone, to make it obvious to others that we are followers of Christ and that we are followers of Jesus. And I want to be very careful here with that statement. Let me bring balance because... I'm not referencing Christian martyrdom or suffering to earn something. That's not what I'm saying. I don't want us to leave here today with the illusion that in order to be an effective Christian witness, you must suffer. That is not biblical truth at all. However, there is trouble we can avoid. There is trouble we cannot avoid. And there is trouble we must not avoid. What do I mean by that? Well, if standing fast for our faith means that we are criticized if being faithful in our service means we have to go to some inconvenience if in being co-workers with God we are required to sacrifice then those things fall under the heading of trouble we must not avoid trouble we must not avoid Stephen was willing to suffer he did not seek it out he merely sought to be faithful Nevertheless, when he was confronted with the need to suffer for his faith, he did not betray betray Christ's trust in him. And so my second question for you this morning is this. Are you willing to pay the price for your faith? To suffer some inconvenience and some sacrifice because you are a follower of Jesus Christ. This brings us to the final thing we need to see about Stephen's witness. Stephen was willing to forgive those who had wronged him. Such an important thing in our culture and society today, even in this season. As he was dying, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Those were his final words. See, forgiveness is more beneficial to the person who offers it than the person who receives it. Bitterness and resentment will eat at our souls. Forgiveness is healing and the key to lasting joy. It might be very difficult for us to identify with Jesus praying on the cross on behalf of those who had put him there. As of course, he is the son of God. I mean, we might expect that of him. We expect nothing less. But what about Stephen? He wasn't superhuman. Rather, he lived in this same mortal house as you and I. And yet, as the stones ravaged his body, he lifted up his gaze and prayed, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. What a powerful act of witness for the redeeming power of Jesus Christ. We've already noted that Stephen's garments fell at the feet of one Saul of Tarsus. As the mob stoned him to death, the scriptures testify that Saul gave his approval to that act of brutality. And I dare say 
that the integrity of Stephen's witness and the way he lived and the way he died, his willingness to pay the ultimate price for his faith and the ability to forgive those who persecuted him probably had a dramatic effect on Saul of Tarsus. They surely prepared him for his experience with Christ on the Damascus Road. It would be most surprising if such were not the case. I say that to say this. Very few conversions occur in a vacuum. Usually, they are a host of experiences, a multitude of people whose influence and encouragement plays a part. That's you. That's me. Wherever we go. And so my last question for us this morning is this. Could somebody find Christ if they stood by and observed a significant moment in their life? Thankfully, it does happen here in Scripture. Stephen was faithful to Christ, and I suspect that his influence helped shape the greatest missionary that Christianity has produced, the Apostle Paul. Stephen was a witness for his Lord. How about us? The building that we meet in is not God's house. Our bodies are the temple of the living God. And so we must walk in holiness before our Lord as we go about our daily lives by beginning in our hearts. Amen? At this time, I'd like to ask our ushers to hand out the elements. We'll be taking communion here. And as we're about to conclude service today, I'm also going to invite the worship team to come back up. You know, and it's very easy for something like this, which we do often, to become an outward ritual that we go through without getting our hearts right before God. And Paul warned us that we must first examine ourselves before God and then partake. And if you're unfamiliar with how this works, there are two cups. The drink is in the top and the bread is in the bottom, so you can just take those apart. But be reminded that when we take communion, we are remembering Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. The bread and juice are tangible, visible reminders. His love. So as our ushers continue to hand those out, just take a moment to meet with God. Meet with your Creator. Even now. Those of you who are at home, you're more than welcome to join us in communion. Please feel free to use whatever bread or juice you might already have at home. 
Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 28 says, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for your grace. That through your Son, Jesus Christ, you establish this supper to partake in the life Jesus has given us through it. Life that he has given us through his death and resurrection. Amen. And Jesus said, take eat. This is my body. Let's eat. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, let's pray. Lord, we come before you humbly again, Father. Forgiven through your Son, Jesus, the growing faith, love day by day, until we come at last to the joy of eternal salvation in you. Amen. Jesus then gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's drink. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, God. We thank you that in the passage we looked at today, we're reminded that even us today, we are a remnant of that which remains. So as we leave from here today, fill us up with your Holy Spirit. May we testify to that work which you're doing inside of us. As we go about our day, as we go about our week, may authors be able to witness your presence and your spirit alive in us. We thank you for your sacrifice. In your name we pray.